Congress raced to pass a massive $40 billion spending package for the war in Ukraine at the same time as the foreign policy establishment contemplates the possibility of a military confrontation with China. We'll also discuss the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd and the racist massacre in Buffalo, the struggle for abortion rights as the Supreme Court ruling looms, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's May 24th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which is being rescheduled to Tuesday, May 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. This month, we'll be focusing on questions from supporters on Patreon, so subscribe now and send questions for Brian to address on the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion. I'm Walter Smolarik here with Esther Averam and our host, Brian Becker. Nicole is out today. Esther Averam is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's start with this massive $40 billion aid package to Ukraine and other issues related to the U.S. war machine. Well, we're going to do that, Walter. But first, we just have to stop and and thank George W. Bush for being such a buffoon. I want to start with an audio clip of George W. Bush denouncing the war in Iraq. I mean, the war in Ukraine. Wait, he's confused. Uh, Let's get started with playing this audio clip. This was just in the past week. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. (laughs) Iraq, too. Anyway. uh, (laughs) 75. Uh, All right. He can make light of it, but, you know, call it a Freudian slip, whatever. A brutal invasion of Iraq. And, you know, when you think about all of the great humanitarian outpouring within U.S. Congress and amongst the U.S. corporate-owned capitalist media for the victims in Ukraine. And of course, we care about people dying in this war. We care about Ukrainians dying. We care about Russians who are dying. 
We care about the fact that the U.S. actually provoked this crisis such that this war would actually happen. The U.S. wanted this war. The U.S. is quite happy about the war. But, you know, as much as we care about the lives lost in the Ukraine war, you never get any of the tremendous outpouring for the people who died in Iraq. Maybe hundreds of thousands, according to the Lancet Medical Journal, and this was in 2010, that medical journal, esteemed British medical journal, estimated that a million Iraqis had died by that time, just seven years into the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. Maybe a million people. They weren't all killed from missiles and bombs and bullets. They also died because they couldn't get access to clean water, because they didn't have access to medicine, because they were shuttered in their communities as this reign of terror befell their country. But, you know, with, when you think about George W. Bush, who's responsible for it, making this Freudian slip and denouncing the invasion of Iraq, the audience just kind of titters. It just laughs a little bit. And it's considered kind of well, maybe he's a buffoon, maybe it's silly. Well, what about war crimes for George W. Bush? And what about a sense of proportionality? The U.S. went to war in Korea, and according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, between 1950 and 1953, four million Koreans died who would not have otherwise died. The U.S. invaded Vietnam, Millions of Vietnamese died, not to mention the 58,000 U.S. soldiers who lost their lives. Then there were two invasions of Iraq, the bombing campaign against Yugoslavia, the bombing campaign that destroyed the government in Libya, a government in a country which up until that time had the highest standard of living in Africa and also the largest oil reserves in Africa. When you think about the way the U.S. presentation is about Ukraine, and then you think about George W. Bush making this slip in public, I don't know. I just wanted to start the show with it. With that said, Walter, the $40 billion aid package to Ukraine isn't really aid to Ukraine. Nine of the $40 billion, nine, goes directly to U.S. arms manufacturers to, quote, replenish weapon supplies that have already shipped to Ukraine. So this is in the name of defending Ukraine and Ukrainians, just the U.S. government taking our tax dollars and sending it directly to Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed and the other weapons manufacturers, who, of course, as I said before, are very thrilled, very excited about the war in Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. And I think that goes a long way to explain why Congress acted with such uncharacteristic speed when it came to packaging this piece of legislation. I mean, if there's anything that Congress has a reputation for in, in society, it's probably that it's it's slow and inefficient and ineffective. But when it came to giving their friends in the military industrial complex, their friends at Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin, a huge payday, they were very quick. They were very efficient. The Biden administration, Joe Biden himself, requested three weeks ago a $33 billion aid package for Ukraine for the war in Ukraine. And as you pointed out, of course, a lot of that will just go to these U.S.-based corporations. And then three weeks later, Congress gave him $40 billion. Three weeks. That's all it took them. Clearly, I mean, when it comes to death and destruction and making the world a more dangerous place, that's no problem. 
But you know what? This society is also in the middle of a baby formula shortage. I mean, babies, the most vulnerable people in society, are going hungry because of the failure of the economic system. I mean, there's a wave of eviction sweeping the country. Schools are in terrible shape. People can't afford to stay in their homes. There's COVID funding, right? I mean, even in this bill, right, this Ukraine aid package, originally there was going to be about $10 billion of COVID relief funding included, but they took that out because that would that would muddy the water. They want to do something that's exclusively for war and militarism. Congress has no sense of urgency about any of these crises facing working people. But when it comes to deepening a war, right, I mean, perhaps the most dangerous thing that's going on in the world right now, I mean, because it poses the risk, it raises the prospect of a direct military confrontation between the two main nuclear armed powers in the world, making that situation even worse. Congress has no problem acting with deliberate speed there. I want to mention one other really important new development since this is our show in the news. The U.S. is actually continuing to prepare and public opinion is being prepared to support nuclear war or a global war between the United States and Russia. That seems unimaginable. It certainly seemed unimaginable just a short while ago. We've been asserting on this program and you know for the last six weeks that the logic of this particular war is that the United States is going to be in a situation where confrontation with Russia becomes direct confrontation becomes ever more likely. This is a proxy war. The U.S. Pentagon and intelligence services are having a major role directing the actual military combat. Yes, it's Ukrainians who are doing the bleeding and Russians, but the U.S. is the hidden hand in directing the war. So here's a headline from an article from None other than Mitt Romney, who ran for president, a leader in the Republican Party, supposedly, I guess, now the moderate wing of the Republican Party, because his name is not Donald Trump. Here's his opinion piece, guest essay, big headline in the New York Times, we must prepare for Putin's worst weapons. Yes. Well, what are those? Those are nuclear weapons. We must prepare. So the U.S. could be preparing to go back to the negotiating table and finding a way to end this conflict, making sure that Ukraine wasn't going to be a staging ground for advanced weapons in Russia's backyard, something the United States would never let Russia or any other country do. The U.S. could do that. But no, Romney, like the other politicians, Nancy Pelosi said, we must, you must fight on till victory, actually. He's now preparing for Putin's worst weapons. Of course, those are thermonuclear weapons. Russia's foreign minister and its ambassador to the United States have both signaled that Russia's debacle in Ukraine could lead to a nuclear strike. And then he goes on, Mitt Romney goes on and explains why we have to get ready for it meaning getting ready for nuclear war. We pointed out that the Wall Street Journal, I guess they were just a week ahead of the, or two weeks ahead of the New York Times, they ran them a major opinion piece. The banner headline went from the left to the right side of the page. Under the banner headline, the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. Yes, that was the opinion piece, main big article in the Wall Street Journal. Esther, 
we've entered Dr. Strangelove territory, Stanley Kubrick's movie in 1964, where Stanley Kubrick lampoons the insanity of nuclear war. But here we are again, and it's actually being discussed as real possible options. Well, when you were talking about Bush's comments and his word salad in terms of Iraq and Ukraine, it just also reminded me the fact that the U.S. has been always prepared for this type of insanity because we've ignored, in addition to Iraq and the the million plus people dead in Iraq, this two decades of drone warfare across the Middle East, especially where, you know, there was a hearing that's gone largely ignored back in February as the U.S. has continued to stock Ukraine with these weapons. The hearing in Congress also showed how over the past two decades, we've killed tens of thousands of people with these drone strikes. And we know from the testimony from Daniel Hale that most of these drone strikes killed innocent people. So we've been continually prime for this moment, Brian, by discounting the lives of people in Iraq, discounting the lives of these tens of thousands of nameless, faceless people killed all across the Middle East by these drone strikes. And we only know about that family in Afghanistan before the U.S. left because, you know, we were preparing to leave and and they were in the news. Ten plus people in one family killed has been the norm for the past two decades. So, you know, Mitt Romney talking about nuclear war, it's just a, a ratcheting up of this erasure and this kind of not looking at war in the realistic way that it should be. I want to recommend to our audience that if you haven't seen the movie Dr. Strangelove from 1964, it's a landmark movie. It's a comedy, what's called a dark comedy. It's considered perhaps one of the greatest comedic movies, certainly in recent times. The real name of the movie is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Again, the story concerns an unhinged United States Air Force general who orders a first strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. Then the Soviet leaders and U.S. government leaders attempt to prevent the first strike from happening. Spoiler alert, they can't. Each side has weapons that the other side doesn't know about and triggers that the other side doesn't know about, which means that nuclear war, global nuclear war and the end of life as we know it becomes absolute, becomes certain. Anyway, it's a comedy. Check it out. Look at it. But that's where we are right now. We're at a situation where the government or the cold warriors like Mitt Romney are talking about nuclear war as if that has some level of credibility. And I just want to point out to people that Mitt Romney and so many of these, you know, now nuclear warriors and gung-ho warriors, when they were younger people and there was a war going on in the United States or between the United States and Vietnam, they found a way to get out of that war. That included George W. Bush. That included Bill Clinton. Mitt Romney, the great brave warrior in the Vietnam War when he was younger, he got two, two S student deferments and then a 4D ministerial deferment while living in France. 
Yes, he was a missionary in France. That's why he couldn't go and fight in Vietnam. So here are all these politicians. And again, Mitt Romney is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, as are all of these politicians. These are rich people. This is a rich man's war. They're all rich man's wars. And other people do all the fighting, the dying, the bleeding, and they make sure that they don't go to war. And now they're talking about nuclear war as if this is some kind of a game. And the same goes with, as we've said over and over again, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Kurt Campbell, the same people who created the fraud, the conspiracy of Russiagate in order to get Hillary Clinton elected. These same people are now cavalierly going forward in a sort of multi-pronged attack against Russia with the idea that this will draw Russia into a larger, longer, protracted conflict as the Soviets were drawn into in Afghanistan starting in 1979. And these geostrategic warriors, they don't actually do any fighting. They have it all mapped out and they're very happy, very comfortable. And they know that as soon as they retire from government service, they're going to go work for one of these military contractors like Lloyd Austin, who said, our goal is to weaken Russia, which means Russia will undoubtedly, if that's the goal, escalate rather than be defeated. Lloyd Austin, before he was Secretary of Defense, was at Raytheon, you know, selling weapons, making millions. Anyway, it's the system that is militarized. American capitalism, a distinct, unique version of capitalism, 100% militarized. And again, everything we hear from the capitalist corporate-owned media is simply propaganda designed to make these people look good, to make other people think that their plans have credibility, should be followed instead of being opposed. Yeah, what's in the interest of the working class all around the world at this moment is peace. I mean, that's what would stop essentially the looting of public wealth by these giant arms manufacturing corporations, like the obscene waste of tens of billions of dollars. And I mean, who knows where it'll go, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars on instruments of death and destruction. Peace is in the interest of working class people because it would stop the the dying and the suffering that working class soldiers are sent to go do by the people who run their societies. And peace is in the interest of the working class because it removes this horrific threat of nuclear war. I mean, no exaggeration, this world-ending threat of nuclear war. And so everything that the U.S. government and the U.S. ruling class does to try to deepen and prolong and expand this war should be completely opposed, whether that's the shipment of huge amounts of weapons, like this $40 billion package that Congress just passed, whether that's economic measures, economic warfare, sanctions, trying to cut Russia out of the world economy, or that's simply their refusal to negotiate. Because that's what ultimately will have to happen if there's going to be any kind of lasting solution to this crisis. The United States has to sit down and negotiate with Russia, which they refuse to do so far, essentially negotiate a new framework for security and peace in Eastern Europe that involves mutual demilitarization. The United States has shown no interest in that. And so I think that's really what anti-war people in the United States need to be focusing on, opposing economic warfare, opposing the shipments of weapons, the proxy war that the U.S. is waging, and opposing the diplomatic intransigence of the U.S. establishment as well. I want to go on to mention that the Biden administration has now announced that it is preparing for war with China. Yes, uh, the war in Ukraine, big, dangerous, possibly leading to nuclear conflict. 
Well, in the U.S., the Biden administration, they they have the bit in their mouth. They're all about it. New York Times headline, May 23rd. Biden says U.S. military would defend Taiwan if China invaded. Now, let's remember, the United States acknowledges that Taiwan is part of China. The Shanghai communique in 1972, the opening of normalized diplomatic relations in 1979, a third communique between the two countries in the early 80s, they all affirm that Taiwan is part of China, right? It's part of China. It's a part of sovereign China. I want to read to you, President Biden is in Tokyo. He indicated on Monday that he would use military force to defend Taiwan if it were ever attacked by China, dispensing with, quote, strategic ambiguity, close quote. That was sort of the lingo that the U.S. had assigned its earlier position on Taiwan. The strategic ambiguity traditionally favored by American presidents and repeating even more unequivocally statements that his staff, that would be Blinken and Campbell, tried to walk back in the past. A reporter says, you didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes, Mr. Biden answered flatly. You are, the reporter followed up. Quote, this is Biden's answer. That's the commitment we've made. So here you have the president of the United States at the very moment that the crisis in Ukraine is getting ever more complicated. It's deepening. The danger of a wider war is obvious. So he goes to Asia, to Japan, which of course invaded China, and tens of millions of Chinese people lost their lives during that terrible invasion that began in 1937. He goes to Japan and says, yeah, we're ready to use military force against China if there's any kind of military conflict with Taiwan. And this is happening after the U.S. It was secret before, but it's out now. The U.S. has actually been in Taiwan working with Taiwanese military and preparing them for conflict with China. So, you know, in 2018, the U.S. reorganized its military doctrine. We've said this over and over again on the, on the show, but it's, it needs to be emphasized. A new military doctrine preparing for major power conflict. Within four years, the U.S. is in a proxy war with Russia. And now Biden in Japan announces that the U.S. is ready to use military force against China, which, of course, is the other major nuclear power in the world. This is the thinking. This is the thinking and the talking, the presentation of U.S. government leaders at the highest possible level. So as you said, Walter, if people care about peace, the road to peace is not to get out in the street and demand Russia withdraw from Ukraine. Even if you don't approve, and we didn't support the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the United States is going for victory in Ukraine, and Russia knows that. So as a consequence, Russia is not going to, quote, withdraw without a serious agreement that guarantees its national security. So just demanding Russia withdraw from Ukraine means absolutely nothing if you're talking about you want peace. If you want peace, you have to direct your anger, your protest, your demands to the U.S. government which has created the crisis with NATO expansion in Europe, is creating the crisis by training 
Taiwanese soldiers, creating the crisis by sending 60% now of U.S. naval and air assets into the Pacific in the decade following President Obama's announcement that the U.S. was, quote, pivoting towards Asia. You know, if you want peace, you have to recognize that the danger of a wider, bigger, and perhaps greatest war of all time is with the U.S. ruling class. That's where the danger of war actually resides. Well, the other thing that's really important in terms of all this ratcheted up militarism is the fact that, you know, average Americans who are beset with high prices for gas, for fuel, for housing, all these things are looking at this like, wow, what happened to the investment in human needs in this country? So... Meanwhile, billions in what would only partially cover what is needed for continued COVID aid was taken out to, you know, bolster this Ukrainian aid. We already talked about that. But, you know, there's so many other things that are being, you know, put to the side or totally even eliminated. You know, you remember that, you know, last week Biden talked about police getting COVID aid instead of it being used for like public schools and teachers that, you know, the population of the unhoused continues to explode in this country. You know that in another part of my work, I go to Union Station a lot, and the U.S. Parks Department just actually posted a sign saying that there's no camping will no longer be allowed out in front of Union Station, which is like a public park. It's a small circle called Columbus Circle. And when people come to Union Station from across the country or across the world, one of the first things they see are usually several tents housing, you know, the unhoused people here in D.C. And I suppose that it's become like a real embarrassment, you know, not just for the district, but for the federal government. And so they posted this announcement. It's posted on polls all around Union Station that as of June 1st, these tents have to go. So in addition to that, you know, we we saw how Build Back Better was basically eliminated. So things that could have in, increased the funding for housing, affordable housing in this country, the child tax credit, universal pre-K, eliminating student debt, free community college, expanded health care, lower prescription drug prices, climate action. All these things sound like distant like subjects now, you know, because we're not hearing any of this because we're just hearing about $40 billion for Ukraine. And then finally, I'll say there was a vote on Thursday where the Senate eliminated $40 billion. It, it turns out to be, well, it's about $45 billion, just almost the same amount that would have helped a lot of small businesses stay in business. A representative for the Independent Restaurant Business Coalition said that local restaurants across the country are expected to close around the country. People had sold their homes, cashed out retirement funds, or taken out personal loans, anticipating that this money would come, but it's not coming. And they estimate that 90,000 small businesses in the U.S. are expected to close after the Senate refused to pass this funding. So, from, you know, last year when we were talking about Build Back Better till now when they are approving $40 billion for Ukraine but not helping small businesses here, Americans are left to see who this government is really serving and there's these corporations and the 1%. Esther, again, just say real quick, how many small businesses are anticipated to be closed? 
90,000 small businesses. That's a headline in Common Dreams. And then further down in the article, they say of the 170,000 small restaurants that had hoped to get this aid, they were saying, you know, clearly half of those could close. So maybe those numbers are the same, but still, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of small businesses. You know, it's so worth remembering that, you know, when there's an uprising, and we're going to talk about it because it's the second anniversary of the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent uprising against racism. But in that huge uprising against racism, that, you know, unprecedented, 35 million people came out. Almost all of the protests were peaceful, but there were clashes with the police. The police attacked the protesters. There was a lot of use of tear gas and rubber bullets, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of violence perpetrated against protests by the police. And then there was some very, when you look at the big picture, pretty minor amounts of violence that came from the protesters' side. And in some instances, small businesses were vandalized. And the big headlines all over the country in the capitalist-owned media was, in defense of these small businesses against the looters, right? And, you know, like Kyle Rittenhouse had to go, you know, miles, miles and miles from his home in order to defend small businesses where he killed two people and shot a third. And there was all of this right-wing fascist, racist, vigilante mobilization in defense of small business. Well, you look at those numbers and you look at what's happening in society, The real looters in society are the banks, are the corporations, are the military contractors who are looting the national treasury, all in the name of national security, all in the name of defense. And even as we talked about $40 billion to, quote, aid Ukraine is actually just a big subsidy for these same corporations. And then the government turns around and says, having given all of this money to the big bourgeoisie, it says to the small tiny business people, we can't help you. And 90,000 businesses are going to be driven out of business. And the reason is that the big bourgeoisie are the real looters. And they have support from the their assistants in the Congress who are assisting in this kind of looting. And let's call it for what it really is. It's a form of looting of society's resources to give it to the already rich, to make more weapons, to carry out more wars so that poor and working class people can kill each other. Meanwhile, the big arms manufacturers are laughing all the way to the bank. You know, it's funny when you say laughing all the way to the bank, because one part of this article on Common Dreams, I was actually taken aback by. Okay, so this is a a paragraph talking about why these senators voted against this funding. It says, quote, the vast majority of GOP lawmakers claim that helping locally owned restaurants and bars to stay open and continue employing people in their communities would worsen inflation and contribute to the deficit with Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky saying on the Senate floor that, quote, dumping more money in the economy is simply pouring $5 a gallon gas on an already out of control fire. So, (laughs) you know, on this show, we know that the reason there is inflation is because of corporate greed, not because some restaurant is, is getting a little grant or something. So anyway, that really just shows how outrageous this is. 
Let's go on and talk about the uprising against racism. Of course, to remember George Floyd, what a terrible murder. What a terrible murder when Derek Chauvin just sat on his neck as passerbys pled with him, begged him to not kill George Floyd, and he just cavalierly sat on his neck, hand in his pocket, doing what cops do so routinely, which is to exercise sort of unmitigated authority. They have a license to kill. They have a license to kill. That's, in fact, what they have. And it takes an uprising like the uprising against racism so that one cop caught on videotape obviously carrying out a murder, a deliberate murder of an unarmed person in his custody, it took that in order for Derek Chauvin to go to prison. But, you know, the issue of racism, the issue of racist violence, the issue of police violence, state violence, and vigilante violence, this is not going to go away. This is fundamental to capitalism in America, to the formation of the capitalist society in this country. It's premised on slavery. It's premised on racist violence. It's premised on vigilante violence. It's premised on genocide of the original inhabitants of this land, as we talked about last week, where you have these right-wing racists now talking about white people in America as if they were the indigenous people and they're being replaced by immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we have to also sort of think again about all of those victims, Esther, in Buffalo. The community came together, the black community, and many people from the white and Latino and indigenous communities in Western New York, and there's, it's a very multiracial, multinational area, came together. But again, the issue of vigilante and racist violence is a second epidemic in the United States. Yeah, I saw a post from a public health official who called it a public health issue. She said, you know, there are 10 fewer African-Americans here in this country right now because of a racist killer. And she was, you know, making a call really to start a new conversation about precisely what you're talking about, this racist violence, whether it's coming from the police or whether it's coming from a vigilante. There's also, you know, in light of this massacre in Buffalo, as we talked about last week, a real conversation about how differently this armed killer was treated when arrested. But also there's discussion about how the laws passed did not track him, did not keep him from buying guns, did not put him on a red flag list after making threats at his own high school one year earlier about committing murder and suicide. And what I've been thinking about is the increased budgets we know there are for law enforcement, for the FBI, the larger federal police state, and how obviously two years after George Floyd's murder, none of the mechanisms of this state police power have been directed toward these white supremacist killers. You know, maybe they're still looking for black identity extremists or or other people that they think are threats. And somehow this young man who posted very openly and frequently online about his plans was not caught. And he was allowed to case the store, visit apparently a few times in the month before this massacre. 
and where the managers, you know, said that he was in the store calling people the N-word and, you know, just being in a way you would think would be very uh, noticeable and something that police should be concerned about. But no, this happened online and in person and it was allowed to happen. Yeah, I mean, deep down, it seems like the cops know that they're basically on the same side as these racist murderers. They're basically on the same side. I mean, they used minimal, minimal force to apprehend this fascist murderer. You know, one would expect that if ever deadly force was warranted, it would be in the aftermath of a massacre at a supermarket where 10 people were gunned down. But that didn't happen. You know, certainly the FBI and all of the federal agencies, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, whatever, don't take the threat of white supremacist fascist terrorism seriously at all and never have. And in fact, have targeted the people who are on the other end of the political spectrum fighting for black liberation, for for human dignity. I mean, deep down, they know they're on the same side because they basically have the same job. They have the same job to use overwhelming violence and the threat of violence and terror to control and oppress Black people and all oppressed people in this society. It's the same basic function. No, the connection between police and policing and racism and racist vigilante violence, that goes from the beginning of the rule of the slaveocracy in the United States, starting you know, in the early part of the 17th century. 17th century meaning around 1619, when the Jamestown colony was established, and and for a few years before that in other places. You think about Kyle Rittenhouse, right-wing racist vigilante. You know, he came to Kenosha where the cops shot Jacob Blake five times, remember? And he's paralyzed for life. Miraculously, he lived. But there was an uprising against racism. And in the name of protecting small businesses, Kyle Rittenhouse went there and murdered two people And he became, you know, he was a favorite of Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson and the right wing. And the cops were, you know, fist bumping with him. You know, they were partners. They knew they were partners. Anyway, talking about the 17th century, also known as the 1600s, Samuel Alito, Esther, is apparently more comfortable in the 17th century. Sadly, we don't have time travel, so we can't send him there. (laughs) But when you look at his draft decision, eliminating, eviscerating, extinguishing women's bodily autonomy, meaning the right to control their own bodies, he's looking back to a jurist from the 1600s. Let's talk about that. Well, I guess the sad thing is that he's not the only one looking at this jurist from the 1600s. His name is Sir Matthew Hale. And he was made infamous for his opinions that led to the killing of scores of women in the Salem witch trials. And but particularly for establishing that a woman cannot be raped by her husband. And considering that, you know, as an African-American woman, I'm sure that his rulings also led to the ideas that enslaved women could not be raped by her enslaver. But let's put that aside right now. So anyway, legal scholars say that Hale's writings and reasonings have caused enduring damage to women for hundreds of years. In addition to the so-called marital rape exemption, Hale established a long-used instruction to jurors to be skeptical of reports of rape. 
even during his time, he was thought of as a misogynist. This article in ProPublica talks about how he wrote a long letter to his grandchildren dispensing life advice in which he veered into a screed against women, describing them as chargeable, unprofitable people who, quote, know the ready way to consume an estate and to ruin a family quickly. And he particularly despaired over the changes he saw in young women, writing, quote, and now the world is altered. Young, gentle women learn to be bold and to talk loud. So in addition to believing that a married woman could not be raped, he did not like the you know growing independence of women and the fact that they were talking too loudly, right? Since that time, especially since the 1960s and 70s, Hale's rulings or his ideas, his opinions have been increasingly discredited. They aren't used as much in this country as they used to be. And so to see Alito actually reference this jurist from the 1600s is really shocking, especially given his opinions about women and his opinions about you know our rights. Yeah, again... Judge Hale was Lord Chief Justice of England in 1671, 1671. But Esther, his writings, his legal opinions, which are obviously, you know, he's explicitly sexist, explicitly hostile to women, and explicitly, obviously justifying rape. His idea that, or position, legal position that a married woman could not be raped by her husband was a prevailing legal opinion in the United States up to and into the 1970s and maybe beyond. And he was cited. So it's not a complete anomaly. You would think it would have to be an anomaly that a U.S. Supreme Court judge in 2022 could be citing as for legal precedence the Lord Chief Justice of England in 1671 But that was actually not that unusual up until the 1970s, in other words, till about 50 years ago. Anyway, we don't know when the decision is coming. We don't know what the Supreme Court will actually do. There have been mass protests all over the country. They're going to continue. Uh, There's going to be a women's convention in August, August 10th. Women's organizations are calling the summer the summer of rage. Anyway, The only way to preserve rights, women's rights, abortion rights, any rights that were achieved through mass struggle is to resume the mass struggle. Because if we leave it to the Democratic Party, if we leave it to Congress, if we especially leave it to the Supreme Court, all of these rights are going to disappear. And, you know, just before we move on, I I wanted to make it clear that it not only affected cases of married women, but he also built in this whole skeptical way of looking at all charges of rape. So Hale wrote in terms of considering any rape case, and in that time, the only jurors were men. He wrote, did the woman cry out? Did she try to flee? Was she of, quote unquote, good fame 
or quote unquote evil fame? Was she supported by others? Did she make immediate complaint afterward? And this ProPublica article, just one more example, it gave the example of a case when his writings were cited. In New York City, an aristocrat, Henry Bedloe, was accused of raping a 17-year-old seamstress, Lana Sawyer. Bedloe hired six lawyers, including a future U.S. Supreme Court justice, who used Hale's framework to destroy Sawyer. Sawyer said she screamed, but one attorney asked the jury, did she also stomp her feet? Witnesses spoke of Sawyer's good fame, according to the trial record, but, quote, she may have had the art to carry a fair trade outside while all the while was foul within, quote, the same attorney argued, quote, ultimately, the defense team's dizzying effort to dispute and distort reality had been a part of a relentless effort to transform a young woman who mattered into one who didn't, end quote. And then the jury took 15 minutes to acquit this aristocrat, Henry Bedlow. Esther, let's go on. The New York Times has some unusually important coverage on the Haitian Revolution, a series. Again, the Haitian Revolution, the one that started in 1791, ends with the final victory in 1804, the first successful slave revolution in human history where the enslaved people become the new masters of society. But Haiti was never left alone. Haiti hasn't been left alone till this day. Haiti has always been punished for daring to win, daring to rise up, daring to struggle. Anyway, the New York Times coverage, which of course, when you look through history, the New York Times has been an apologist for the imperial domination of Haiti. You could go back and look when the U.S. invades Haiti in 1914. And the Marines go right into the center of Port-au-Prince and take all of the money, all of Haiti's money out of the bank, take it to the port, put it on ships and bring it to Citibank in New York City, where the Citibank just kept it. Anyway, the New York Times has historically been an apologist. But, you know, in some ways, the Times are changing because of the struggle of people against racism Anyway, let's just talk a little bit about the importance of these stories and the importance of the Haitian Revolution. Exactly. So this is a multi-part series in the New York Times. And and like you said, I think it's informing a larger swath of the population about facts that certainly we've discussed on this show in the past, but, you know, many people don't know. And it talks about how after the enslaved people of Haiti revolted against their French slave masters and defeated them in the Haitian Revolution, the French returned two years later with several warships and demanded that Haiti either pay a ransom to the these former slave masters and to France or, you know, risk being attacked and annihilated by this, you know, vast army or Navy. So the New York Times actually calculates a figure for this massive theft over centuries and scholars who they talked to for the piece have chided them actually for not giving full credit to all the scholars and people who have investigated this before them because the Times didn't just come up with these numbers themselves. Other people have been investigating this and writing about this for decades. But their research found that Quote, Haitians paid about 560 million in today's dollars, but that doesn't 
nearly capture the true loss. If that money had simply stayed in the Haitian economy and grown at the nation's actual pace over the last two centuries, rather than being shipped off to France without any goods or services being provided in return, it would have added up to a staggering $21 billion to Haiti over time, end quote, all right? Also, later in the story, some economists and financial historians interviewed say that without the burden of this double debt, meaning that the ransom they had to pay plus the money they had to borrow to pay the ransom, you know, and this borrowing was at outrageous levels of interest, right? If they didn't have to do that, that Haiti might have been able to grow at the same rate as its neighbors across Latin America. And in that case, the loss to Haiti is about $115 billion over the same time, or that's eight times the size of its economy in last year in 2020. And this is another quote from the article. Put another way, if Haiti had not been forced to pay its former slave masters, one team of international scholars recently estimated the country's per capita income in 2018 could have been almost six times as large, about the same as its next door neighbor, the Dominican Republic. So one example they give in this article about the debt that Haiti was forced to pay, it kind of proves the point that really they paid well beyond what was supposedly paid to these former slave masters, right? And it gives the example of this one man, Joseph de Laborde. And it says, quote, in the late 18th century, Laborde shipped nearly 10,000 Africans to Haiti in his slave boats and had more than 2,000 enslaved people on his plantation there, many of whom died. French revolutionaries beheaded him in 1794, but two of his children, Alexander and Natalie, received about $350,000 francs or about $1.7 million today for his claimed losses in Haiti. Officially, former colonists just got one-tenth of what they lost, but Laborde's son, Alexander, a fervent abolitionist, said in an 1833 parliamentary debate that the compensation payments were so large that they actually exceeded the plantation owner's losses. Quote, he said, with half of the compensation I would receive, I could buy the three houses I owned, he told lawmakers. So that's one piece. And then the second piece talked about how one bank, Credit Industrial and commercial siphoned millions of dollars in fees and interest from Haiti's treasury to France and how this same bank was able to finance the Eiffel Tower with all these like tremendous you know profits that they were making. And then the third piece gets to what you talked about earlier, the U.S. role, because, you know, after 1915, when the U.S. replaced the French as the colonists in Haiti, they took this goal from Haiti, but also built up Citicorp Bank, you know, with these types of profits, you know, installed these dictators and propped them up over decades to continue the rape and destruction of Haiti. You know, Haiti lost its ability to build its economy, to dig out from these centuries of ransom payments and debts. And, you know, it just had to 
pay attention to a new superpower to its north instead of France. So I think that the the series is really illuminating for a lot of people. For many of us, it will just be adding more details to a history that we already know. But it's important, you know, because, you know, Haiti comes up in the news every so often, most recently with the migrants who travel, you know, many, many hundreds of miles up through South America sometimes to come to the United States border because of the destruction of their country's economy. But, you know, this country has such racist treatment of Haiti, not acknowledging our role in the destruction of Haiti. So it's really important for people to know the real history, the history of of colonization that even came up to this century in terms of our coup against the president, John Patron Aristide, who was saying that Haiti deserved reparations. And the series talks about how for that call, you know, that may have led to his coup, the U.S.-sponsored coup and the collusion of France and U.S. to have him exiled to Africa and to basically, you know, disrupt Haiti's democratic process in terms of electing a leader that would speak up for its interests. Okay, we're going to go on to our final story. Walter, what are the big stories in liberation news on your newsletter this week? Thanks, Brian. Again, as I do every week, I want to urge everyone to sign up for our newsletter. You can go to liberationnews.org and find the link to do that at the top. One article that I highly recommend is titled, Oklahoma Legislature Takes Anti-Abortion Offensive to New Depths Banned from the Moment of Fertilization. Oklahoma passed probably the most extreme anti-abortion law in the entire country, imperiling not only abortion rights, but actually some forms of birth control as well. You can get more details in that article. Another piece that I want to highlight, this is a statement from the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Solidarity with the Sudanese Communist Party. We've covered on this show before the the people's movement, the uprising, the revolution in Sudan against military rule and for social justice. That struggle is ongoing. The revolutionaries are facing severe repression. And finally, I want to highlight a article That's a report from a McDonald's workers strike, a walkout in Los Angeles titled McDonald's workers in LA walkout against abuse. Today it was me, tomorrow who follows. Low wage workers are fighting back across the country as part of the overall surge in workplace labor militancy that's sweeping the country. A lot of very exciting details there. So go to liberationnews.org. You can find these and many more stories. All right, we're going to leave it there. We'll be back tomorrow with economist Professor Richard Wolf on Wednesday on Breakthrough News at 7 p.m. We'll have the video edition of The Real Story. We're going to be joined by Eugene Perrier. We're talking in more depth about the U.S. military industrial complex, military strategy globally, both in Europe and in China. Again, we're moving our seminar. It was going to be this Wednesday. It's going to be Tuesday, May 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I'm answering any of your questions. We encourage all patrons to join us. Ask a question if you have one. Send it in in advance. We can't do this show without people who like the show or rely on the show doing their part by subscribing to the show. So again, we urge people who are not yet patrons to become a patron. And again, join us Tuesday, May 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.